good day everyone, you're listening to Time for Your Hobby, and this is episode 114, 114. Give me a camera and I'll create wonder. I'm your host Alex, and today I have the honor to have Zena as my guest on the show. How are you doing today? Doing well, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being there. I was that random guy on Twitter saying, hey, want to be on my podcast? And you're like, yeah, and here we are. As simple as that. <laughs> yeah, that happens. And today we're going to be talking about micro-budget filmmaking. But before we do that, I'm sure the people would love to know who is Zena. <laughs> well, I'll try to keep this brief. I'm Zaina. Uh, I'm a filmmaker from Chicago. I like to tell people I make commercials by day and movies by night. I'm a producer at an ad agency by day. And then outside of that, I'm an independent filmmaker. Uh, since 2015, I've produced 15 films. Some are features, some are shorts. I primarily focus on social justice oriented filmmaking and filmmaking uh, that focuses on characters and stories that we don't really ever get to see. And I, my entire process, the two things I'm most passionate about are demystifying the micro-budget film process and, and creating activist-centered work. Majority of my films, I've self-funded, and the biggest budget I've had for a self-funded project is $5,000. The smallest is $100. I have two films on Amazon Prime Video that I did for $100 each. And a lot of people ask me, like, how? And, and to me, it's, I can't imagine doing, being a filmmaker any other way than being nimble and scrappy. And it's really what I do for fun. I make films because I just like making films. And a lot of people think that you can't be a filmmaker unless you're doing it or pursuing it um, as a professional career. And to, to those people, I tell them, like, you don't have to be pursuing a career in dance to take a dance class and enjoy it. Um, I am just passionate about filmmaking. And even though I don't do it full time, it is a hobby of mine. I, I really, really enjoy it. And I'm just as passionate as a filmmaker who's pursuing it full time. So micro budget filmmaking is my hobby. And it's kind of like the idea of not what you have, but how you use it. And if correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're the MacGyver of filmmaking <laughs> like you, you could use anything around <laughs> you to make it work it's like you know what that chair will make it turn into a spaceship somehow i don't know i'm i'm not the creative one yeah. here you're the one here and i've seen your work it's tearjerkers see you, you got you. like that yeah. you got that you know how disney makes those tearjerker movies you got that kind of like ooh. You, the, i gotta push that teardrop right back into the eye and poke my eye yeah <laughs> <laughs> a lot of my films do make people cry and and I, I do like telling stories that, you know, um, make people feel and and yeah, drama, especially with my short films. Uh, those are those are that's my thing. So for you, it must have all had a start. So where did it actually start off for you? Yeah. So I I was homeschooled until I went to college and I started college when I was 14 years old. And at that age, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I changed my major six different times, starting off in zoology, just because I loved animals. And I kept changing it and changing it because, again, at 14, you don't know what you want to do as, as a career. I finally wound up in acting. And my parents were like, we're not, we're not going to pay for that. So I ended up majoring in marketing and minoring in acting. And in my senior year, I interned for a talent agency. And that's when my eyes were open to the world of production, that production is a business. And so that's what's prompted me to go get my master's degree in cinema production. I went to DePaul University and I graduated with my master's at 22 years old in 2015. And since then, I've produced 15 films. And that's that's really when I started in film school. And a lot of, of filmmakers, um, not just in my cohort, but but what was taught was the the fundraising and pitching and 
you know, going out to LA, like that route. And I was like, well, why am I, you know, going for these scripts and these films that are going to cost me $100,000 to make and I don't have $100,000. I want to make films, but I want to make them immediately. I want to make them with the resources that I have. So that's what prompted me to start writing scripts and producing scripts and directing scripts and just creating films that were based on the immediate resources that I had available to me. And that just spiraled into to who I am pretty much today. And that person is awesome, right? Yeah, <laughs> I'd like to think so. <laughs> I think so. At least one person in this conversation. If it's two, then it's perfect. I think you're awesome. Uh, so speaking of which, you, I love how just the steamroll of everything just got started. Do you actually still own your first script or even the first thing you filmed? Yeah. Um, the first film that I ever produced in and of itself, I'm of course, like I cringe at it now because there's so many things I would have done differently, but I am still really proud of that. Um, just because it was the first project that I ever actually saw from script all the way into distribution. And it was such a great experience for me. And it really showed me that the role, you know, there's so many different roles in filmmaking. And especially when you're an independent filmmaker, you wear multiple hats. But my favorite hat to wear is production. I really love the the logistics of filmmaking. Um, so I do still have the very first film that I did. It's called Hooked. And yeah, like I said, there's so many things I would have done differently. But I, I really appreciate the process and what I learned from that and how it kind of was a springboard into who I am today. So this is a really odd question, but do you ever take inspiration from your old productions into your new productions? So like, oh, I like that element. I'm going to take it and just twist it into something new or even con continue the story in some way or even throw in Easter eggs. Um, Like story wise, I don't continue on uh, for my stories, but as far as production and behind the scenes, I absolutely have looked at productions, you know, for example, budget wise and said, like, I did not need to spend that on this production next time around. I'm definitely going to, you know, cut costs this way or this could have been shot in one day instead of three. And this is how we could have, you know, made it happen. So I always try to improve uh, every single production, you know, that I do. But story wise, I don't I don't really do like repeated or continuous in that way. OK, and. On another note, how would you define your filmmaking style? You said drama. Is that the only field you focus on? Do you do horror as well? Do you do adventure, mystery, thriller, or romance? Yeah, I, I focus primarily on activist-centered work. And that usually falls into the category of short dramas and educational documentaries. Um, I'm slowly starting to expand into dramas that have comedic elements to them. I really love, again, I love making people feel. So the the short, the upcoming short that I'm writing, it is a social justice oriented drama, but there are a significant amount of laughing moments and comedic moments in this. And this is new for me, but I definitely don't dabble in horror. That's not my thing. You know, comedy is not my thing, but um, I do. I love educational documentaries um, and I love uh, short films. I really, really love short films that are dramas, that are narratives. And how long does your stories usually last? Well, for short films, the longest short that I've done is 14 minutes. And then for features, uh, I've only done docs that are features and that's Interesting because film festivals, you know, you will usually consider anything over 40 minutes to be a feature. 
So I have three over 40 minute films and then the rest are shorts, 14 minutes and and under. So uh, let's say you had a movie or a film that was 39 minutes and 59 seconds. And I would imagine there's competitions where you try to enter your film for a short film competition. Do you find it hard to cut some scenes like you want to put everything in or you're like, you know what, I have to cut it or just keep it going? Well, it depends on the genre. I will say if something is, you know, to be considered eligible for a festival needs to be 40 minutes and it's at a second mark, you just extend the credit roll. That's not a big (laughs) deal. But if you are, for me personally, I have usually several different versions of my documentaries. So a few of them are distributed by distributors that uh, partner with the university libraries. And so they'll be in academic spaces. So those are usually longer format films, like full hour, 20 minutes or full hour long films. And then for the festival versions, there might be like a 40 minute or a 30 minute version of that film. And, you know, it depends on your audience. And that's the thing about production is as a producer, you're looking at the project in the in its entirety from from development all the way to distribution and who is your audience. And sometimes you have multiple different audience uh, groups, different sectors that are going to require different cuts of your film. So always think about who's going to be watching it and what's going to um, really resonate with that audience uh, from that's my, you know, marketing perspective coming out. But that's how I usually judge the the cuts of my film. Uh, as far as shorts, it's like it is what it is. You get what you get. But with documentaries, I'm a little bit more flexible, especially if they're longer format. No, you mentioned the audience aspect, which I'm pretty interested in, because when it comes to any type of creation, criticism and opinions come in from everywhere and anywhere. So on that note, how much does people's opinions play a role in your production aspect? Um, They don't. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this, you know, there for my documentaries, I usually give myself a limit of people for feedback. And I also let filmmakers know this all the time. You know, creativity is subjective. Quality is not. I always want to know if somebody says, you know, if your sound design is is kind of messed up or if you if it's not the best that it could be or if this doesn't make sense or if the color is, you know, really, really off in this scene or if the sound is not synced or whatever that may be the quality of the film i want it to be shot well i want it to sound well i want it to look good i want the quality to be there creativity is something that is very subjective you know storytelling is really can be interpreted in a million different ways and i think that filmmakers can get stuck in this rut of feedback and constantly editing and constantly changing and and you know everyone's going to have an opinion regardless. So I think, first of all, prioritizing the quality is something that I do. I make sure that the film is succinct. It looks good. It sounds good that it's actually quality and ready for distribution. And then, uh, as I'm, as I'm editing, not really with my shorts, I don't do this with my shorts, but for my documentaries specifically, I'll get a pool of people, some that are veterans in the documentary space, some that are documentary filmmakers and some that are just viewers that can look at it, look at it very objectively. And I'll limit myself to that group, whether it's 12 people, 15 people, whatever, and give myself a time limit for feedback and edit accordingly. And again, I separate that feedback by either quality uh, feedback or creative feedback, because creative feedback, you could take it or leave it. Quality, I want to know if this is something that is 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 not my best work. But so it sounds like, and I say this in the compliment kind of way, you're a perfectionist, you're a hard worker. Has it ever happened to you that you've completed a project? You're like, wow, I put in so much work into this. I'm so proud of it. And then you notice a tiny mistake and you're like, oh, I just want to take that out or fix it. Has that ever happened to you? All the time. There's so many edits that happen with any 
film and you finally spend like three hours exporting a project and then you watch the full thing and you notice like a glitch at like the 37 second mark or whatever that is. So there's there's always those moments or, you know, you're at a premiere, you're at a film festival and then you realize that, you know, maybe the sound or this this cut jumped too quickly at this like one mark. But again, you as the filmmaker and you being so close to the project and seeing it so many times, you notice those things. 90% of the time, your audience does not. Um, and that's something that I've had to learn over time. If you don't just get the thing out there, you're going to be editing and nitpicking and just going over the project over and over again, and no one's ever going to see it. So yeah, that does happen to me a lot. It's just, it's all part of the game. It's all part of the process of being a filmmaker. I know exactly where you're coming from because when I edit my episode for any podcast, I tend to listen to it on my computer, then my cell phone, some earbuds, and I show it to my wife. I'm like, honey, do you hear this part? She's like, no. Like, no, I'm like, like this part yeah. right here. Do you hear this? This weird thing that annoys only my ears because I've been listening to it over and over and over again. She's like, Alex, you're going crazy. I'm like, yeah. it's there. I'm telling, I'm telling you, it's there. It's like somebody who saw a ghost. It's like, I swear I saw it. I swear it's a ghost. Yeah. <laughs> and this might be a tough question, but you know what? Are you ready? Yeah. What is the best part about being a micro-budget filmmaker? Honestly, it's being able to create work on my own terms. Um, a lot of people, they go for the Hollywood route. They, you know, pitch and they go for investors and they crowdfund. And, you know, they have these scripts that are hundreds of thousands of dollars to make. And it is a huge, very competitive cycle. Whereas me, you know, I have a job. And my job pays my bills and I'm making films when I'm going to make them, how I want to make them and not having to rely on my craft and my creative outlet to sustain me is what gives me the flexibility to tell the stories that I want to tell. So the best part of being a filmmaker is being able to be the captain of my ship and, and create content on my own terms. You know, I feel like I'm just talking to myself right now. I feel the exact same way. <laughs> Because you can do it whenever yeah. you want. There's no pressure. And it's kind of like escape from realities. It's like, you know what? I had a long day at work. I don't feel pressured by doing this. I'm doing this for the love of it. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And to a certain degree, I also feel like sometimes I'm not judging people who do it for a career, but the people who do it as a hobby are very passionate in doing it. It's like you have nothing to lose, but everything to gain. Absolutely. And, you know, like I don't like when money drives creative. You know, I'm, I'm always weary of meeting filmmakers who are interested in just making money again. Like, yes, you have to sustain yourself. Yes. Everyone needs a roof over their head and, you know, shelter and food and like things like that. But like, if people are literally trying to make, make filmmaking into some sort of like get rich quick scheme, or they're like really focused on the monetary aspect mm -hmm. of this, I question why they're in it to, you know, at, to begin with. I also don't mind focusing on the smaller the niche film festivals, not the big major ones, because I don't care about, you know, the distribution deals and and the fame and the accolades. Like, I really want to get it in front of an audience that's going to really appreciate the work. And a lot of times those are niche, smaller film festivals. Those are academic spaces. You know, those are on the platforms that represent the filmmakers that value the same things that I do. So, I'm not in it for anything other than just loving it as 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 a hobby of mine. It is a passion of mine. And you can have a hobby that that is driven by your passion. Yeah, I completely agree. Like when it comes to this podcast, I've had some people say, hey, I want to be on your podcast. I have a thousand or a million followers. And if they start off that conversation like that, I'm thinking, 
No, I'm good. If you start off talking yeah. about your hobby first, then yes, I'd much rather go for the person who is like has two followers or no followers who doesn't even know what social media is and just loves talking about their hobby. That's the person I want to talk to. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for you, you say you grab inspiration on real life things. Does any of those experiences actually come from your experiences in your life? Absolutely. Especially with my documentary films. Uh, I did one uh, called Ready, Set, Adult. And that just followed, not really followed, but it was an inside look at me and my siblings journey of being homeschooled until we went to college. Black Feminist is another one of my docs that I'm super proud of. That was a feature doc that explored the racial and gender oppression of black women in America. And it had a narrated character. It had archival footage. It had a really great set of interviews from authors and doctors and teachers. And it was really academic, but it was also fun. And it did, it's done really well in the university space and at a few festivals. And then also the most recent one that I did, it's called Unlearning Sex. It actually follows my six month journey through sexual trauma therapy and recovery. And with that, I interviewed neuroscientists and trauma therapists. And um, it, it's really, you know, being able to be a filmmaker and inspire other people to do things like learn and heal and and inspire is just really what I love about filmmaking. And a lot of times that is putting myself at the forefront or pulling, putting my experiences at the forefront. And you know what, on that note, nowadays is kind of like the best time for people like you and I to be people who create stuff because we can just post it online and share with the world. Back in the days, 30 years ago, you had to know the most top end producer or own, have a lot of money to create things. But nowadays, just having the internet, having a camera, just knowing how to use your material, you can go out there and reach people that might have not been able to reach before, which I find that pretty cool. Absolutely. The market is completely different. The market is completely shifting and it's continuing to shift. I think a lot of networks, you know, they're, pe people are consuming content faster than we can even create it. And I think that, you know, we don't have the budgets to keep up. And because we have Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and all of these different outlets and channels and people have Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and everywhere you look, there's a place that's streaming content that has content and these content spaces and platforms need content. And the beautiful thing about being an independent filmmaker is that they will license your content and they have the reach and the audience. And they need stuff like that. And it's great to be able to do it on a micro budget scale and still get the reach and still get, you know, your work in front of an audience without having to have, you know, a sales agent, without having to have um, a lot of the barriers that you had to have back in the day when you were being, when, when you were a filmmaker. And it's all about that community aspect, just talking to people and connecting with people on multiple levels. And on that note, how is the filmmaking community around you? And let's say, how's the process to find actors and other like sound engineers and stuff like that? Yeah. Um, so I like to say that I collect people <laughs> <laughs> and the biggest, like, Biggest things about me as an independent filmmaker is I have a tribe. Um, so when I screen my films at festivals and when I teach film classes at film festivals, you know, I there's always a line of filmmakers there to talk to me and exchange information. And, you know, I do my best to keep up with as many filmmakers as, as I can. And a lot of filmmakers who see my work will like email me or DM me and say, hey, I saw this film. This is my reel. This is my website, whatever. And that's been going on for several years. And so I have a really solid film tribe in Chicago. I have a great film tribe in Atlanta. I'm building one in Brooklyn. Um, I've never been to LA, but maybe one day I'll build one there as well. And I, I am a huge believer in, in having a 
a film tribe and that community is really how you're able to to thrive as an independent filmmaker because it's sharing resources, it's sharing experiences, it's collaboration, it's it's things like that. So community is everything, especially when it comes to independent film. So you said you had a tribe. So I have to ask, does your tribe have a name? Oh, no. They're <laughs> just like my, I literally just call them my film tribe <laughs> just because like they're like this conglomerate of filmmakers that I know in Chicago and know in Atlanta and, and in Brooklyn that at any point, you know, I, I, for my recent documentary in less than a month, I pulled together a three camera studio shoot for $200 because of my film tribe in Atlanta, because of the people that I knew, because of the resources, we just like pulled it together and made it happen. Um, and that's how I'm able to do these films on such a micro budget scale. Um, even, you know, collaborating with other filmmakers on their scripts and their projects, uh, I'll be brought on as a producer and, you know, it's, it's really about that community aspect of like, I worked on your project. I got you, you can work on my project. You got me. It's just great. It's just great. Now, this is kind of like a side question, like a twist question, but you know, I, I would imagine it happens sometimes, but what happens, let's say when you're producing something or creating something and there's a disagreement on a creative aspect, how would you deal with that? Well, it depends on the project. You know, there's a hierarchy with everything, but I don't really look at it as a hierarchy. It's it's a really it's about roles. And as long as you're in your role and owning your lane there, that should answer your question. If the disagreement is, you know, we usually it boils down to the the producer's role because it's money and time. So if the creative is the director is like, hey, I really want to get these last four shots, but we have to pack up the equipment and get out of this location within the next 30 minutes or else we're going to be charged an overage fee. If the director is not coming out of pocket to pay that money, we have to move. So that creative decision, you know, that, that that's null and void because of what the product, how the production is moving and what's at stake. If it comes down to the edit. And we're like, oh, I, I'm not happy with this cut. We need to revise. Um, I'll look at the post-production schedule and I'll say, okay, what film festival deadlines are coming up? We're not going to be able to make these. Is that okay with the director? Cool. We can, you know, continue to massage this edit and extend our timeline. Or if we're like, client needs this deliverable by Tuesday because that's when the media buy is, we don't have time to tinker with this edit. So I look at it from a very logistical standpoint. What is the timeline? What is the budget? What is at stake? And that's what drives me making decisions. And I would also imagine communication is especially key when it comes to this, because one miscommunication can screw a lot of things up. Absolutely. As with any industry, but especially with film, you know, you have to keep your team moving in the same direction simultaneously. If something changes, the entire team needs to be brought on board and needs to know, you know, everybody needs to be moving in the same direction. And this is an odd segue I'm doing, but staying on point when it comes to you creating your production is in a lot of parts improvised, like the lines are improvised or you stick more to the script. Uh, depends on the film. Um, for documentary, I usually do interview academic based documentaries. So I'll have some questions for each candidate that I'm interviewing. And usually they'll expound on those questions and kind of put their own spin on it based on who, who they are and, you know, what their answers are. And uh, as far as like scripted, some of the films that I've done are improv and I give them the scene setting and the prompt and I let them know like what is going on in the scene and they go from there. Um, and then other scenes are fully scripted to like to the T. This is what's happening. This is what the script is. So it really just all depends on the project. 
And I'm sure some of the listeners right now are wondering, do you act in your own productions? I do. I do. Um, I've let me see if I can remember how many films that I've put myself in. Like it's 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 quite a few. Um, Hooked is a short, my first short film that I did, I was in that one. Hourglass, uh, the second short film I did, I narrated that one. Mima, I was one of the lead actresses in that one. That's my most recent short film. Demons, I was also the lead actress in that one, one of my most recent short films. And all of my documentaries, I'm in them in some aspect, not really acting, but I'm just a part of those films as well. Does it, this is a really odd question, but does it feel odd being in your own movie or your own film and then you produce it? It's like you're playing both roles, like you're seeing from the perspective of the producer and the actor? No, I, I don't think it's weird um, I or, or difficult for me. I, it's definitely, it, it can be a challenge at times, but I always, again, I, I, being able to be like, for example, my m- most recent short film, Mima, I was the producer, director, writer, editor, and actress in that film. And being able to wear all of those hats was, was great because I was directing based on what I thought would work in the edit. And we wrapped several hours early because I was on top of the schedule being the producer. And I knew the lines really well because I also wrote it. So it, it, it worked out. Um, it, it definitely, you know, that was my 14th film. So this was not like my first film that I tried to do. But I think that, you know, wearing multiple hats and understanding what those roles are is something that uh, any indie filmmaker is going to find themselves doing because we don't have the luxury of being able to staff like 30 percent crews. Sometimes it's like five people. Sometimes it's three people um, just putting a film together. And so. Um, you find your groove, you find what works and what doesn't. I know I am absolutely not a gaffer. I cannot light anything. I'm not a camera operator. I buttons scare me. Um, <laughs> anything with like equipment, that's just not my thing except for like editing. But beyond that, I, I don't mind producing and directing and writing and, and, and acting. So this is where you need like Google home installed into the camera, where it's like, it just Google record this specific scene at this specific angle and just like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. That wouldn't that be nice. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe next year. We, we don't know. The future is moving yeah. so fast. <laughs> right. And for you, do you have any inspirations like people you look up to or even encourage you to keep on doing this? I have in the advertising world, ad production world, I have definitely mentors that I, I look up to still now, but really were able to shape my early career. Uh, for sure. And just watching people who have been producing, you know, for longer than I've been alive is just really incredible. Uh, they've, they've seen the industry change so much cause it's so, it's just ever changing. And I don't, I don't really have, you know, in the film world, I don't really have a mentor type of person, but I, I surround myself with like-minded filmmakers that are so supportive and, and encourage me to keep going. So so definitely my film tribe is is who encourages and inspires me a, as a filmmaker. And what was your biggest challenge when you first started filmmaking? I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I had no idea. I, um, you know, it, it was a lot of like, fake it till you make it. Um, I made my first film while graduating from film school. And like I said, I learned so much from that. And that's why now I, I really pride myself in being such a buttoned up producer and sharing with other filmmakers, you know, the process, because pro- a lot of people focus on the creative and neglect the logistics. 
And I think that it's just so important that we focus on things like the budget, the schedule, the script breakdown, the contracts, the production insurance, the distribution and marketing plan, the outreach. Like those are things that matter. And I, I learned a lot just from having to wear the producer hat and figure out the whole production in its entirety throughout the lifespan of the film, uh, for sure. And speaking about the lifespan of the film, how long does it usually take you to complete a project from like the start? Like this is the idea, the idea we want. And then once it's released, that all depends. Um, all of my films have never taken longer than one year with the exception of an animated project. And that one is really tricky because we've been through like four different animators at this point and they've all had to like drop out for different reasons. But we finally have an animation team now working to finish it. And that'll be about a year and a half to, to complete. But from start to finish, again, it, it just depends on the project. A, a film that has, you know, 10 locations and, you know, 17 different scenes, that's going to take longer than a sh short film that takes place in one room with one character. It also depends on the distribution plan. Are you planning on submitting this to 15 different festivals and shopping it through the festival circuit? Or is this going directly to Amazon Prime Video? This all, you know, will affect the the time, the budget, the the editorial. There's a lot of different factors that come into play. So when people ask me how long does it take, really depends on what the project is. But for me, most of my projects have not taken longer than one year. And yeah, perfection takes time. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Now, it almost sounds like you know everything, uh, but I still have to ask this question. What is your current biggest challenge? My current uh, biggest challenge for me, I think it's having to turn away projects. I wish I could take on everything. You know, I... I, I truly do, but now working full time as a um, advertising agency producer, you know, I split my time between the productions at work and the productions outside of work, and really just being realistic about my bandwidth is something that I'm still learning. This is the first year that I've been very firm in my nose um, and understanding that not every opportunity, not every script that is thrown your way, you don't have to to take that. There was a point in time where I really did try to take on everything. And that was just too much. And it affected the quality of my work. It affected my well-being. And so I'm it, it is a challenge to to say no to the prod to certain projects and and figure out my groove in terms of like what how much I can truly take on. That's definitely, it's still an ongoing challenge for me. I get where you're coming from because the brain can be very dangerous because let's say you don't take something, you're like, well, what if this was the one that was going to get me to this place? What yeah, if? I, I also, I just like doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, like again, like awards and accolades, like that's, that's cool. That's not why I'm a filmmaker. Uh, I just like telling stories and I like, you know, bringing teams together. And I like reading a script and being like, oh, I know exactly who I want to shoot this project or I know exactly who I want to direct this project or I know exactly who I want to be the colorist or the actress or like I like putting teams together and seeing a project through. I love doing that. And there are some really awesome scripts that come to my inbox. Like There's just really great stories. But honestly, 50% of my time is to my work productions. I'd say 40% is to my productions. And that other 10%, if I have the bandwidth and time, I'll take on the project of another filmmaker. But beyond that, I just cannot. And it's it's not because 
I'm like, oh, I think this script is going to get me to X, Y, and Z. Because I'm already at where I want to be. It's just like, I, I like the story and I want to tell the story. <laughs> For half a second, when you said 50% of my time, I thought you were going to finish by saying 50% of my time is saying no to people. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not at that point yet. <laughs> And now for probably one of the most important questions I've asked on every episode, what are some misconceptions about people who are micro-budget filmmakers? I think there are the misconception, there's a lot of misconceptions, but one being that you can't have a quality buttoned-up production that looks good and still be on a micro-budget scale. I think that good filmmaking, it takes time to learn, of course, but people hear micro budget and they automatically assume that the the quality is going to be terrible. They automatically assume assume that it's going to look like you filmed this for five dollars, and that's not the case. And a lot a lot of people look at my films and they're they're like it does it doesn't at all look like you did this for you know eight hundred dollars or five hundred dollars or however however small amount that you did this for. So so I definitely think that you know quality and budget are not mutually exclusive. They definitely don't have to be. And I also think that people think there's only one way to be a filmmaker. And that's also not true. You can work full time and still be a filmmaker. I'm an example of that. I've never been a full time filmmaker. You also don't have to be pitching and going towards the major film festivals to be successful. You absolutely can, you know, find your audience and be a, a filmmaker that has a plethora of work that is self-distributed, you know, that it has a target audience and still be successful in your own way. So yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions about micro-budget filmmaking, but but those are the most common that you that you either have to be a full-time filmmaker and do it one way only, or that micro-budget films cannot be quality productions and award productions. For sure. I've heard that for podcasting. It's like, if you're doing an interview with somebody, you have to do it this specific way. Don't ask them. So don't ask them to introduce themselves. And I'm like, uh, oh, oh, well, I've done that for every episode because sometimes it's just strangers I find online. Wonderful strangers. There's not one road. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And uh, I feel like I already know the answer to this, but has filmmaking ever stressed you out? And if so, what do you do to relax? Do you walk away, do some exercise, watch a TV show, build the Eiffel Tower? I, I don't know. What's your go-to de-stressor? Um, filmmaking definitely can be stressful, but I also am a huge advocate for it does not have to be. I think people complicate filmmaking way more than it needs to be. Um, so I think my biggest stress relief is not to create stressful situations for myself. Um, I'm not going to write a script that's going to cost me, like I said, $10,000 to make because I don't have $10,000 to do it. So I'm not going to stress myself out with trying to find the money, find the funding, all those things. Um, I also keep my crews very small. Less people means less contracts, means less contacts, means just easier all around, means shorter days, means less people I have to feed, all of the above. So, so above all, I make sure that I don't create stressful situations for myself. I also try to be very realistic about timing. You know, films can, they can be very quick, but they also some, sometimes there's bumps in the road and sometimes edits take longer. Sometimes, you know, the, the production doesn't go through as we had hoped. Sometimes things are postponed. And I think that being 
as flexible as I can be and still being able to roll with the punches and adapt to the nature of the project is how I keep my stress levels down. I think there's a lot of friction and a lot of high stress when you try to just make things happen. And sometimes it's inevitable. Sometimes things are just not going to go as planned. And being able to roll with the punches and not create these stressful situations for myself is is how I kind of keep my overall stress levels down as a filmmaker. I would imagine you would look at not the whole cake, you would just look at it in slices. So one piece at a time. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, keeping, of course, the... <laughs> Keep the keeping the whole cake in mind, but you know, in in order for you to finish the whole cake, you need to take it off in bite-sized pieces. You're not going to be able to eat the whole thing in a day, or else you'll choke on the cake, and that's like the movie Matilda. That that does not turn out well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this is another tough question, but what has filmmaking taught you in life? Filmmaking has taught me in life that if there's something that frustrates you, and there's something that you want to say make it a film. I think the best way to get a point across is to be able to show and not tell. I think that people are more receptive to watching art. Uh, that's why I like academic films. That's why I like activist-centered films. That's why I like films that evoke emotion and you know inspire change. Um, and I love when people ask questions and I'm able to just send them a link you know, to a project and say, here, like, this is an example. Um, so filmmaking in life has told me to continue to tell stories because the stories just need to be told. I can just imagine you 50 years from now, you're still going to do this and you're going to have a wonderful archive of these stories and you're going to see your evolution. Well, people are going to see your evolution of filmmaking, which is always going to be awesome. But I also feel like filmmaking really does reflect the producer, the director, the creator of it. And I've seen your work and it shows integrity. It shows majesticness, if that's a word. <laughs> it's yeah, very it's very beautiful and I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. And do you have any word of advice for anybody who might be interested in this hobby? Yeah, start small. You know, look at the resources that you have available to you and write accordingly. You know, what is what is the most incredible thing that you can do in one room with one character? Uh, go to film festivals, even if you're not screening anything, go get a ticket to a film festival and watch films from other filmmakers, attend the Q&As, attend the seminars, network with other filmmakers, ask to be a production assistant on someone's film set, see what a film set is like and partner with writers, partner with directors, collaborate. If you are a filmmaker, if you are a producer, a director, a writer, an editor, collaborate with other filmmakers. It's okay to do films for fun. That is totally okay. So uh, definitely collaborate, definitely network and, and think small, start small. Yeah, baby steps. To start off with a very tiny camera, a baby camera. No, I'm kidding, not a baby. <laughs> but yeah, I completely agree with you. And reach out to the world, reach out on social media. You'll never know who you'll meet. Like, you know, Zaina and I just contacted and here we are today talking about her passion. Absolutely. That's how it starts. Absolutely. And talking about social media, see this, how good I am with these segues? Horrible. There you go. <laughs> uh, do you have any social media links, websites, or projects that you want to share with the world so people can come show some love? Yeah. Um, well, I just started a podcast. It's called the Micro Budget Independent Filmmakers Podcast. Season one is on Spotify. Um, so definitely take a look at that. And then also, if you want to watch my films, they're on Amazon Prime Video and on Quelly TV. But the easiest way to keep up with everything that I'm doing is to follow me on Instagram. And that is underscore, underscore, 
Z-A-N as in Nancy, A-H as in Harry, underscore, underscore Zana. Perfect. You know what? I'll put that in the description below. And you just sound like a jack of all trades. You podcast, you direct, you act, you climb Mount Everest, right? Right. You've done that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely done that. We'll have you back on for that episode. Uh, so now for the most interesting question and the most useless question, do you have any questions for me about filmmaking? Actually, it's not that interesting, but it is useless. <laughs> <laughs> do I have any questions for you about filmmaking? Absolutely anything at all. Do you like, do you have a, a background in like, like voice stuff? You have, a, you have a radio voice. So I'm just <laughs> wondering, like, have you been doing this for a long time? Are you, are you a, a voice actor? Like, is this like, what do you do? So, uh, nope, not a voice actor. No experience in that whatsoever. Puberty just hit me really hard. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I used to be a tour guide. So I have that announcement skill. And then I used to produce music, um, like you, I was just like producing stuff. I was recording other people. I love the editing aspect and I did tour guide. And just after a while, my friend's like, oh, starting a podcast. And I'm like, you know what? I might as well start a podcast. And here I am today. On that note, it's pretty funny because my voice sounds very robotic in a sense. So when I work, I work in insurance, completely different. And I studied international development and globalization in university, completely different. But at work, yeah. when I answer the phone, a woman hung up and then she called back. She's like, yes, I tried calling her office and a robot answered. So I'm like, oh, wow. Yep. I'm a robot now. So cool. If, <laughs> if I could say, if I could offer any you know, advice coming from working at, at an advertising agency and also being in the talent agency space, like we work with, there are several agencies that I was at where we worked with a lot of voice actors and all those actors were represented by talent agents. There are so many talent agencies that have voiceover divisions and we book talent for radio spots and for commercial spots that are, you know, narrated, whether it's for like the legal part of it, where it's like, you know, whatever cost may apply, log on to blah, 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 blah. Or if it's like a radio spot and it's completely scripted with voice actors, that's a huge industry. So I, I mean, you, if you have any, like even just demo work of, uh, or examples of you hosting the podcast, and if you were to send that to voice agencies, they're all over the country, Chicago, LA, New York, Miami, there's literally voice agents everywhere. And I, I would definitely seek out representation because you could get booked for, for projects. And that's also kind of the nature of the industry now since we're all stuck at home there's a lot of audio things going on so i would i would for sure look into that there's a lot of actors we work with that had home studios too that's that's interesting i'll definitely look into that and uh, hopefully they have some in canada where i'm located <laughs> oh absolutely absolutely yeah for sure well it's actually interesting because a few days ago i interviewed a guy who does manga production so voices for mangas. Wow. Yeah, I, I can get you guys in contact because he's always looking for voice actors from around the world. Production. He loves the production aspect. I have another guy who lives in Algeria. He speaks four languages. He, he does uh, voice acting. I have a friend who is in film school. So I can get you guys in contact if you want a Canadian contact. I always love connecting people together. Absolutely. I would love that. I would absolutely love that. That's great. So uh, yeah, there you have it. Another body with a hobby. Thank you so much, Zaina, for just coming on and just sharing your love. I really enjoyed this. 
you made me look like uh, I'm not knowledgeable, which is perfect. So I'm always learning. That's this is the point of this podcast. It's not for the listeners. It's for me to just gain more experience in every hobby. So I'll become like a mega hobbyist at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. It was fun. So if you guys want to learn more about Zena, you can go check her out in the description below. I'll put all the links there. Show some love, show some support and just be, you know, kind, friendly. And you can get to go see her awesome, amazing and tear jerker work. Remember, just have some tissues like duct tape underneath your eyes and you'll be fine. <laughs> and if you'd like to be on my podcast or have any questions at all, you can send me an email at timeforyourhobby at gmail.com. And of course, if you like the podcast, leave a review. It's not forced, but you know, it's there. I also sell merchandise on Redbubble if you like that. And also I have a Patreon if you like that as well. But once again, this is optional. If you don't donate, I'm still going to podcast. You can't stop me. This sounds like a threat. I don't know why I'm doing it now. Either way, <laughs> all there. If you don't, good. If you do, good. If you like the podcast, come listen to this episode over and over and over again. <laughs> so once again, thank you so much, Zaina. No problem. Thanks for having me. So until the next episode, make some time for your hobby. Take care.